여기로 Chapter 29, face and neck emergencies, and I, I pre-warned you, I, at least I think I did, when we did trauma overview, I said we was going to talk about the, blunt, the penetrating trauma, then we were going to go through all these chapters that are specific to certain parts of the body, and we're going to talk about blunt and penetrating trauma to that specific part of the body. I didn't lie. Trauma to the face and neck, what do you think are some big concerns here? Airway, breathing, breathing. absolutely. The primary assessment, right? All the life threats are definitely in the, in the face and neck. How vascular do you think the scalp and the, and the face are? How heavily do you think they'll bleed sometimes? And maybe it'll look 50 times worse than what it really is. So um, again, just something to keep in mind. We're gonna talk about all that right there, yep. All right, why do you think the face and neck are subject, are frequently subject, subjected to traumatic forces? Okay, they're kind of out there, right? Kind of exposed, that, that's definitely a part of it. Soft tissue injuries and fractures to bones are common and vary in severity. And again, the, the ones that are more life-threatening are obviously those that go ahead and interfere with the airway and uh, things of that nature. Bless you. Penetrating trauma to the neck may cause severe bleeding. Why? Yeah, major vessels on both sides of the neck, right? You have your carotid artery, arteries, which takes circulate, uh, dang it, oxygenated blood to the brain. I, I need a little bit. And then the, the jugular veins, which is returning the blood from the brain down to the heart for reoxygenation. Uh, who remembers, this is a chapter five question. The carotid arteries go up both sides of the neck, right? And, but then they feed into this circle of arteries or artery that is right, right at the base of the brain. And that circle of arteries has a name that I told you in chapter five. Anybody remember? Huh? Circle of Willis. Circle of Willis. And it looks just like that. An open injury may allow an air embolism to enter the circulatory system. So anything I told you really from the neck down to the bottom of the abdomen, you would address those open wounds to that part of your body how? With an occlusive dressing. You know, you may have moist sterile dressing underneath it or whatever to con control bleeding or to cover up an evisceration or what have you, but you should have the, the uh, occlusive dressing on top of it so you, so you can avoid the, those air embolisms. All right, it says uh, uh, prevention of injury or further injury, particularly to the cervical spine and managing the airway obviously are important. Uh, manual stabilization of the spine. 
if there is a slight chance, we don't have x-ray vision at all, right? So if, you're, if they're injured, someone needs to manually stabilize the head until they can be immobilized because you have two types of patients, right? Medical and trauma. And all trauma patients, uh, until you go to work somewhere with uh, some protocols that tells you differently, all trauma patients get immobilized. Long backboard, CID, C collar. All right. Somebody tell me the uh, six bones or seven bones that make up the cranium and the cranial vault. Where's the occipital at? It's in the back. Does the occipital bone have a naturally occurring hole in it? And what's that called? Foramen magnum. And that's what the brain stem passes through. So that's one. What are the other six? Frontal. Frontal. Mm -mm. Two parietals and two temporals. And what's the seventh one? The one that gets broken if they have a basilar skull fracture. Cribiform plate. Cribiform plate. There you go. Uh, the medical term for your cheekbones would be what? Uh, Zygomas. Upper jaw is what? Bottom jaw, mandible. What is the name of that joint? Temporomandibular joints, right there, y'all. Where the temporal bone, the mandible, and the mandible kind of connect. The neck. What is that right there? That is a hyoid bone. And what is unique about the hyoid bone? That's the only bone that's not connected to another bone. That is correct. The hyoid bone and the ninth pair of cranial nerves is what allows you to swallow. Okay? And then you have the muscles in the neck. You have the main ones you need to, or that we've talked about before, is the sternocleidomastoids which kind of runs from the mastoid process down close to the sternum. Uh, what, other than allowing you to turn your head or shake your head in the no fashion, and that's the atlas axis joint at work too, right? But other than allowing you to kind of shake your head no, what else does the, uh, what other purpose does a sternocleidomastoid serve? They are one of the accessory muscles of breathing. That's correct. And you can always tell when someone's struggling to breathe and they're using them muscles because their neck muscles just flare out every time they draw a breath. The eye, obviously located in the, uh, the eye socket. So the oculomotor nerve uh, innervates the muscles and carries parasympathetic nerve fibers. Optic nerve provides uh, for the sense of vision. And the optic nerve is located in the back of the eye. Now you have two chambers inside of the eye uh, that holds liquid or semi-liquid substances. You've got a uh, 
chamber in the front and you got a chamber in the back. What are they called? Anterior and what? Okay, that's a pretty good guess, but does your book give a different name? Yeah, well, that's the fluid that's in there, aqueous humor and the vitreous humor. Um, and once you lose that fluid, it does not, it cannot regenerate, right? That's why your mom always told you not to run with that stick, right? Because it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye, right? Because it's not going to come back. And the chambers are, I, I, one book that I read before called the, the front chamber, um, the um, uh, ventral chamber as well. So that's why I was asking. Anterior and posterior. The inner surface of the eyelids and the exposed surface of the eye are covered by conjunctiva. And that's another way to tell kind of how well somebody's perfusing or not perfusing. Because if you look on the inside of your eyelid, or you could look at your gums, or you could look, uh, um, it's primarily inside the eyelids and the gums or whatever. What's the normal color of that? Kind of like pinkish, right? But if people aren't perfusing well, they'll be white, not much pink to it. And the ear, the complex organ is associated with hearing and balance. What part helps you with your balance? Yeah, the equilibrium, but what part of the, the, the uh, inner ear there? Hmm? Nah. What, what, what's in the cochlea? It's like fluid, right? And the semicircular semicircular canals too there's fluid in there and if you spin and get that fluid to moving around that's when you kind of lose your balance or whatever um, completely useless bit of information but do you know how a lobster balances itself see that's how we balance ourselves but lobsters have like a little indention in their forehead and there's a little grain of sand in there that moves around it almost like a little bowl on his head and as a sand a speck of sand moves on top of his head that's how he balances himself so if you want to have fun catch a live lobster wipe his forehead off and put it back in the water <laughs> I know a lot of useless information uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Uh, the auditory ossicles what in the world are we talking about when I say auditory ossicles? Yeah, those are the little hammer, anvil, and stirrup, right? The uh, malleus, incus, and the stapes are the little bones that are kind of connected to your tympanic membrane or your eardrum, and those are the bones that aid you in your ability to hear. So if I were to ask you how many auditory ossicles do you have, the answer would be Six, unless you only got one ear. Good Lord, have mercy. 
Hey. All right, man. Injuries to the face and neck, uh, obviously, we've already talked about it. The, the big thing there is looking uh, or, or making sure you don't have an obstruction of the airway. Um, direct injuries. Injuries may cause teeth or dentures to become dislodged. They get in the airway. But the, the, usually the big culprit there is blood. When you talk about an injury. Soft tissue injuries, uh, again, we kind of, this poor little old lady, we've seen her before, right? But that's bleeding actually underneath the skin right there. What type of injury is that? That's an avulsion. What should you do with those flaps of skin? For the love of God, put it back. Yeah, because replacing the skin or that flap of skin to its normal position helps the skin obviously do the things that it normally does, right? Help control your core body temperature, uh, keep you uh, safe from infections and things of that nature. If it's flapped over and not where it should be, obviously it can't do what it can, what it's supposed to do. Um, I believe I've told you this before, but blood, anytime it's outside of the vessels, is very caustic to the rest of the body. The body doesn't like blood being in the abdominal uh, cavities or anything like that. It needs to be in the vessel. It's very, very much so a gastric irritant. Facial fractures. Uh, Always, of course, any trauma for now, like I said, you're going you're gonna to mobilize a patient, but it takes on an extra level of importance uh, to immobilize the cervical spine. Uh, if there's facial injuries, injuries to the head, neck, what have you, you want to make sure that you do that. A general signs and symptoms of a facial fracture if you have a deep facial laceration, uh, pain, ecchymosis, swelling, pain on palpation, crepitus. If you palpate their face and you start hearing this grating sound and you feel stuff moving underneath your fingers, that's not normal. Dealing with facial fractures, and I think there's a picture coming up. Yeah, there you go. These are called the Lafort fractures. Lafort one is where the um, the fracture runs right a, a, across the maxilla, but underneath, I guess the nose. And if you ever see that, you probably won't ever forget it because if this person's talking, their teeth will kind of move. It'll look like they have loose dentures in, but they don't have dentures. It's their teeth, and they like they move. You'll never, you never. Once you see it, you'll never forget it. The fort two uh, obviously starts on one side of the maxilla, goes above the nose, but uh, between the eyes and back down. And the fort three goes right across the top of both of the orbits. Which one would you want to have? No. None of them. Correct. Orbital fractures, <clears throat> your eye sockets, 
Uh, the patient may consider a, a complaint of diplopia. It may, uh, you remember a, a blowout fracture, us talking about that? Like if the zygoma is broken or whatever, sometimes the eye may actually come out of the orbit and get lodged in place. Uh, they will probably have a disconjugate gaze. One eye here, one eye going there. But the, the little red flag thing that, that's going to tell you that, that they have an orbital fracture is paralysis of upward gaze. They won't be able to look up. Zygomatic or cheekbone fractures commonly result from blunt trauma. MVCs, assaults. Uh, one side of the patient's face will appear flattened, because it will, it'll be flatter. The cheekbone won't be as prominent as it normally is. And loss of sensation, and again, no upward gaze there. They won't be able to look up. Our dental injuries, injuries if teeth are knocked out, how should you handle them? Or, st or sterile water, and how, what part do you want to grab? Not the root. Correct. Seen size up. Uh, we said from, from the first slide, you know, um, your primary uh, survey, it, like just about every other patient assessment, uh, primary survey is definitely going to be critical here you have a high chance or high probability that something's going to be interfering with the airway breathing or circulation. Airway breathing circulation in that order and if they have a, if they've uh, sustained a, a head injury pressures building in that cranial vault how may they act sometimes? Like real aggressive or, or combative even. And that may be a patient that you have to restrain with soft restraints just because they, I mean, they don't, they don't understand what they're doing, but they can, can become very combative. Get your history, sample history. Check for DCAP BTLS. Do not delay transport to complete a thorough physical exam. Uh, get in route because especially if they're priority patients, you want to be off the scene how fast? And we call that the what? Platinum 10. And they need to be on the operating table within 60 minutes and we call that the what? When doing your assessment, I mean, ask yourself, do the facial bones seem to be in alignment? You know, it, it, there should be a certain symmetry to somebody's face when you look at the left and right sides. Uh, does the nasal bone seem to deviate from midline? And does the mandible appear to deviate toward one side or the other? Yeah. Reassess every five. Communicate, document. All right. Y'all stretch yourself, and I'm going to sit down.
Ma'am. Okay, yeah, there you go. The possibility of a basilar skull fracture. Always cover exposed parts with a moist, sterile dressing. Uh, always check inside the mouth for broken teeth, blood, what have you, anything that may be an airway concern. What is that? Put it back where it's supposed to go and then dress and bandage it and never place tissue directly on ice. You need to put it in like a bag and then put it on ice, right? If it's completely amputated or uh, removed from the body. Uh, injuries to the eye. And we talked about briefly, I think, last class about flushing the eyes, right? Whatever's in the one eye, when you flush it, you want them turned to that side, right? So you don't flush whatever is in the one eye. You don't want it in both eyes. If you have something in an eye, or maybe you have an impaled object in an eye, well, let's just go with that. Let's say there's an impaled object in, in, in the patient's eye, left or right, doesn't matter. How would you kind of dress that or stabilize that impaled object? Because you're not going to pull it out, right? Yes, sir. Around it, the object, and then wrap whatever that is, wrap, wrap the dressing that you put around it. Yeah, you, you can take cling or that roller gauze. And you can actually just do your hand like that and then wrap it around your hand and it'll be like a little donut ring when you finish. You can put that around the eye, stabilize it. Another thing, and I don't know if it's in this book or not, but you can also take a uh, plastic cup, cut the bottom out of the plastic cup and put it over. That way, that way you're protecting the pencil or, uh, or whatever it is that's stuck in their eye. Um, you can tell what was in the eye in the picture I looked at, right? Uh, you could do that as well, but you would not use a styrofoam cup to do that, though. And that's kind of in the, in the, it might be on a test, that's in the curriculum. Because why would you not knock the hole or bottom out of a styrofoam cup and put it over somebody's eye? Yeah, those little, the little styrofoam guts, right? The little balls come off and they'll get in the eye. But here's what you need to know. Well, let me just ask you, sympathetic eye movement. Okay, if you have an impaled object in one eye, should you cover both eyes? Yes. You should. Now, how apprehensive do you think they may be about that? They're not going to like it at all, really, because they can't see out of this eye to begin with probably too well, and now you're going to cover their one good eye. But why is it important to cover the good eye, too? Because they move at the same time. They move at the same time, that's right. And if somebody walks in the room over here and they cut this eye, then the other eye is going to move too. So cover both eyes. Foreign bodies may be impaled in the eye. Your care involves stabilizing the object and preparing the patient for transport. Um, bandage both eyes with soft, bulky dressing to prevent further injury to the affected eye. 
And flushing it. When do you remove contact lenses? Chemical burn, yeah. Irrigate the eye for at least five minutes. That's not good. <clears throat> That's a little worse even, isn't it? Thermal burns. If the eyelids are burned, do you think you need to protect the eye from light? Yes. Of course. So there's uh, eye pads, and it will be eye pads on your unit that you would cover them with, and maybe something with a little bit of a, not aluminum foil, but a foil type reflective quality to where it will reflect the light and won't get on the eyes. What is hyphema? H Y leading into the anterior chamber of the eye. Yep. Here's a part of all of the eyes. Hyphema. When you look at their eyes, the cornea or that clear part on the very front of the eye, it's kind of, I guess, above your pupil and your iris and all that. The cornea that will fill up with blood, and when they move their head, I mean, you'll see the blood kind of sloshing in there, um, like. Like if this is the eye, and then you got the, and then, man, I'm gonna go all technical on y'all. It'll fill up with blood, and you'll see it over the, uh, the little pupil. And it'll look just like that. Infrared rays, eclipse light, laser burns often cause significant damage to the eyes. That burn is not painful, but may become so three to, four, three to five hours later. What are you gonna do for lacerations to the eye in the field? moist aerial dressing or what have you okay apply no pressure because if the eyeball itself is actually lacerated and you push on it what's going to come out well what's that liquid called in that anterior chamber huh aqueous humor that's right and once it's gone it's gone well there you go it does mentioned the cup still you can cover the injured eye with a protective metal eye shield that's going to reflect light away from it cup or sterile dressing but not a styrofoam cup no bueno again if it's inside the body normally and you find it outside of the body cover it with a moist sterile dressing and stabilize it in place. There's a drawing of hyphema. That's what I was thinking.
See, how many of y'all think that really looks like a, like a Pokemon ball or something? <laughs> Some of y'all do. That's the first thing you thought when I drew it. You just didn't want to say nothing. Not me, though. Orbital fracture. Hey, what, what did I call that gaze right there earlier? see that disconjugate gaze a lot of times, especially if there's pain over the bone that's associated with an orbital fracture. Um, and it'll probably be paralyzed from what for what? Something he won't be able to do, upward gaze. <clears throat> Retinal detachment. Painless, but produces flashing lights, specks, or floaters in the field of vision. Requires urgent medical attention to preserve the vision. The eyesight will go away if that's not corrected. Does your book tell you how you could uh, suffer from a retinal detachment? What are some, what types of things could cause that? And it's, it's more common or, or very common, I should say, in, in, in the boxing. That's correct. Blast injuries. Um, who remembers the different stages or phases of a blast in the blast injuries? Primary. So what's, what gets hurt in the primary stage? The hollow organs, right? From the pressure wave itself. The second stage is called the what? Secondary. Is it the secondary? Tertiary. Or is, which one's which? Is it secondary or tertiary? Secondary would be second. Okay. So, so what gets hurt there? What hits you? And then the third one, what you hit, or the, it, but they also added a fourth stage, right? The what? Quaternary. And what gets hurt there? Our burns. Okie doke. All right. So now, do we, do we agree with this first sentence here? Never attempt to remove a lens from an eye that may have been injured. Contact lenses. Do we, is there many always and nevers in EMS? No, not many always and nevers in EMS. When should you remove contact lenses? We said it a minute ago. Okay, chemical burns. To remove a hard contact lens, use a small suction cup. Um, moistened, uh, moistening the end with saline. 
there's a particular device that your book should talk about to take uh, contact lenses out, hard contact lenses out. Uh, can somebody find that for me? There's a name for it. Should start with an M. What's that little uh, suction cup they're talking about that you, that you should use to take hard contact lenses out with? Just says suction cup. Y'all, uh, called the Morgan lens. <laughs> but to remove soft contact lenses, how do you do that? Just kind of reaching in and gently pinch it, right? And it should pop off the eyes. How many of y'all have a very, very, very hard time touching your own eye? <laughs> you have to show her hand went up quick. It must be really bad, huh? Mm -hmm. I hear you. I hear you. Injuries to the nose. What's the medical term for nosebleed? Epistaxis. What do you do for it? How do you, if someone's got an a nosebleed, then they will call you for nosebleed sometimes. And some of these... No, you know, you may think, well, that's that's an unnecessary call to 911, but sometimes these noses are bleeding. So what do you do? Pinch the tip of the nose and what? You don't want to put their head back like that? Why? Blood goes down the throat into the stomach, and we've already said it's very caustic, right? Uh, that absolutely could cause them to start vomiting. Pinch the, the nostrils, obviously, but um, uh, they should be leaning forward. Does the book tell you anything else you could do to help control a nosebleed? Right there. Push right there. Ask me why does that work? Just does. Yeah, it just does. Like the posit track on a Plymouth. I've never been able to make that work, okay? I'm just going to tell you. But that's what the book says. What's a. Um, epistaxis following facial trauma. Again, it can be severe. People sometimes with severe high blood pressure will develop nosebleeds because they'll pop an artery up in their sinus cavities because of the pressure is just so high. And those are really hard to control. Those are going to take surgery. Injury to the ear. What is the outside of the ear called? The old fleshy part that hangs on the side of your head. 
that we wrap our na uh, nasal cannula around. What is that called? What's the medical term for the outer ear? The pinna is a part of it, right? Oh, is that what they're calling the whole ear now? The oracle. A-U-R-I-C-L-E. The pinna, I believe, is a part of the oracle, right? Using it interchangeably? Okay. Alright, who can tell me like that little that little flap of skin on the front side of your, your ear hole there? What's that called? It's tragus, yes, it's tragus. Alright, we've already talked about that, but something else to understand and I guess we haven't talked about is um, uh, plastic surgeons can repair the damage to the face and mouth if the injuries are treated within 7 to 10 days. That's just a little long factoid that you may see again. 7 to 10 days. And again, we're Picking up the teeth, putting them in sterile water and or milk, not touching the roots. All right, so, you know, ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, I know we, we said that a million times, but like if they're bleeding really heavily in, in the mouth, and, and let's just say their breathing's not adequate for whatever reason, so you think you have to ventilate them. If you're just ventilating them and their oral pharynx is full of blood and you squeeze that bag, where's that blood gonna go? Right into the lungs. And that's called what? Aspiration. Aspiration, and that's gonna turn into what? Pneumonia, and that in and of itself could kill them, okay? If there's anything in that oral pharynx, you have to suction that out before you ventilate patients. And if they're bleeding heavily, that might be a, I mean, you might have to be working it, you know. How long do you suction an adult patient? How about a child? How about an infant? And what do you constantly monitor when suctioning a pediatric airway? Heart rate, because they don't have those oxygen reserves, right? They may just Brady right on down. Injuries to the neck. Why is that a problem? Trachea. You can crush your trachea. If the trachea is injured, and air may actually leak out of the trachea and get under the skin. So if you're palpating across their upper chest, you'll, it'll, it'll, you'll feel like crackles under the skin. Because that's air that's accumulated in pockets under the skin. And that is called subcutaneous emphysema. I'd write that down. Subcutaneous 
emphysema. Injuries to the neck cause loss of voice, difficulty swallowing, um, severe and sometimes fatal airway obstruction, and then leaking of air into the soft tissues of the neck, which is called what? There it is, see? It's a crackling sensation once you palpate uh, the, the upper chest and the neck. <coughs> That probably did not work out well for this young lady. Carotid arteries, jugular veins. She probably exsanguated in just a couple minutes. And any injury, any open wound to the neck, you're definitely going to use that occlusive dressing. And see how they're stabilizing. I think that's the dressing. I think they're showing you like on the side of her neck. But you do not put the bandage circumferentially around somebody's neck. You don't do that. If the dressing's on this side, take the bandage, obviously go across the body and under the opposite armpit and back up across the neck. You don't go around the neck. Larynx injuries or voice box injuries, obviously you're looking at, at things like uh, unrestrained driver striking the steering wheel, they say snowmobile rider, I guess it could be uh, hitting a clothesline, it could be a motorcycle rider, whatever, hitting that clothesline and that's a, I mean I don't think there's that many clotheslines anymore but. Why are the old telephone poles up? They got the kid, huh? Hey, you did that once. Yeah, you didn't never do that again, did you? <laughs> All right, if you have a, an impaled object, do you ever remove it? Remember now, there's very few always and nevers. Unless it's preventing you from doing CPR or creating an airway concern, then you would remove it. Signs and symptoms of a larynx injury, obviously respiratory distress, hoarseness, pain, uh, dysphagia. What if they can't swallow at all? That's aphasia. Coughing up blood or hemoptysis. And if, if they have an open wound to the neck, and there's sputum or spit coming out of it, you know, that, that went clean through, right? Subcutaneous emphysema, uh, bruising of the neck. 
again, whether it's the muscles, whether it's whatever it is, uh, as far as the neck, you still have the same, <coughs> same concerns, airway, ventilation, and oxygenation concerns. Helmets, face shields, mouth guards, and safety eyewear help to prevent injury. Yep. So use your seat belts, airbags, uh, headrests. Make sure your headrests are up high enough to match the back of your head because if not, you're not really, it's not really doing any good. And that is it, folks. And uh, I apologize to 